0: to teach you the depth of His Word. Enjoy the study. All right, we're going to get started in Hebrews 4 here, and we're kind of diving into a new section of the the outline. Um, Brent, can you... We'll we'll go through them. It's okay. We can go through one by one real quick. I was going to have you fast forward, but it's okay. We'll just start at the beginning real quick. So before we start, I do want to just pray... I do want to pray for John two twenty seven over us and over the the service and and over the teaching. Uh, God has a lot to say about Hebrews four in the beginning of the chapter about entering into His rest and what in the world is that and what does it even mean. So there's a lot for you to glean out of this that the Spirit wants to teach you today. So let's just let's go to Him and petition that Lord. We just thank you so much again for. This morning, God, I pray that you would anoint this place and that, God, 1 John two twenty seven, that by your spirit, you would teach us everything this morning. God, let us hear exactly what you would have of us about entering into your rest. We love you and we thank you that you give us the opportunity to enter into your rest today, as you say in your word, Lord, today. And God, I just pray that we would be bold to enter into that place that you're calling all of us to, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so First John 2.27, that, that is what we're, what we're guiding on, our verse to guide us through Hebrews, I should say, and what we're leaning on through all of this study. And it's so that we can have confidence when Jesus appears from 1 John 2.28, to have confidence to foster and strengthen and grow an unashamed bride for Jesus' return so that we all have confidence when he calls us home someday. Or if you just pass away before the rapture and you meet him anyway, to have confidence and to be bold in his throne room. So Hebrews uh, chapter four, entering God's rest. You can go to the next slide, Brent. It's the, the start of chapter four. We're kind of moving down the outline here. A leader better than Joshua. So when the children of Israel were entering into the promised land, Joshua was leading them. And the start of chapter four is a continuation of the second warning in Hebrews. And it's all about how Jesus, the rest that Jesus offers is better than the rest that Joshua was offering the children of Israel at that time by entering the promised land. And there's just one verse that gives a hint at Joshua. So don't, don't read it in your Bible and go, well, the name of Joshua doesn't even appear in, this, in, the, in these verses. Just bear with me. It'll make sense when we get there. But we're starting that, that next part of the outline as we go through this. And then next week, the back half of chapter 4 is going to be really, really powerful. It's a little bit of a deviation from the normal part of the, the string of thought through Hebrews so far. And it kind of veers off into the Word of God. Being, You all know the verse powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword dividing amongst the thunder, the soul and the spirit. So we're going to talk a lot next week about what is the soul and the spirit and why do you need to divide it and putting the spirit over the soul and putting things in their right order again so that you're led by the spirit, not by your emotions, doing things not out of anger, not out of fear, not out of greed or any of those emotions that would drive you to action, but being led by the spirit. So next week's a little bit different, but these five warnings in the book of Hebrews, the whole book, again, is built on these warnings to Christians. That's the point. These Christians were in a really peculiar point in history where the temple had been destroyed, or I'm sorry, the temple was not destroyed yet, but Jesus had died, and so the church had started. So they were trying to cling to their Christianity, their faith in Jesus, but being persecuted to go back to the rituals and laws of Judaism. So it was Just a unique spot they were in. But the five warnings, we covered the first one, the danger of drifting in chapter 2. The second one we covered last week, the danger of hardening the heart. We started it, and the finishing of it is today. And then it's danger of failing to mature, willful sin, and then refusing, refusing God. All of those are in order of basically growing away from the Lord, a progression that culminates with apostasy. And the key is to make sure through the word of God that we're not growing away from him, but growing closer to him. And so the warnings are there for us today, just as, just as much as they were for the ones back then. You can go to the next one, Brent. So the, the warnings are in place because we have something we can lose. It's not our salvation. If you're saved, you're once saved, you're always saved. In Jesus, he did it. He paid for it. You can't do anything to lose it. You can even lose it if you tried. And we've covered that in a lot of verses through Revelation and Hebrews so far. But what's at stake are your inheritance and your rewards in heaven with the king. And so that's what these warnings are there for. So the kingdom, that central theme, 1 Corinthians 15, see, it's going to take Jesus a thousand years during the millennium to build a kingdom, the millennial kingdom that is. All over the Bible, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, it's all about the kingdom. When we return with Jesus as the church in Revelation 19, it takes him a thousand years to build a kingdom that is purified and offering it up to God, that, that under him that God may be all in all. That's the, the whole central theme of the Bible, which is incredible when you really recognize it, but First Corinthians 15, 24 through 28 so building the kingdom, it's not, just a, it's not constrained to just revelation. It's all over the Bible. And so it's something that once you recognize that, it really makes the whole Bible just come to life. So Jesus is pleading with us from Revelation 3.11. Remember, behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man may take thy crown. And in Revelation 2 and 3, those seven letters to the seven churches Jesus outlines something, a reward for the overcomer. And I've put those at the end of the notes here today again, just as a reference point for us. We're going to talk a little bit about the words of Jesus on how were they to hold on to those rewards. And he's saying, hold it fast, because you have something you can lose, which is a crown, not your salvation. Okay, the opening of chapter four, it's really a continuation, like I mentioned, of the second warning that we started last week, and it's the danger of hardening your heart. The three verses that close chapter three last week, but with whom was he grieved 40 years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Okay, so they can't enter into God's rest in the promised land that he had laid out for them for thousands of years before, centuries before he laid this out. And remember, it's all a reference back to Psalms 95, verses 9 and through 11, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. So if you remember, God is using the wilderness generation, the children of Israel, As the object example to us today, that these were a redeemed people, saved out of Egypt, saved by the blood of the Lamb, the Passover. They wandered the wilderness and God laid out everything they needed to do to enter into the inheritance and the land that he promised for them. And yet they refused constantly because of, the end of Hebrews 3, disbelief, unbelief. And so they had... They then were basically told, okay, that's it. You're all going to die in the wilderness. Your children will go in. And that's who Joshua and Caleb led into the promised land. So what is this rest offered by the Lord? This is a key question to start chapter four. And what I I want all of you to think about, what is God offering? He swore in his wrath that they could not enter into his rest. What is he talking about here? Because it's not the rest of being saved. They were already saved and they couldn't lose it. So what is the rest being offered? There's something that God was offering to the children of Israel that they forfeited because of their unbelief and they could not enter into. And so throughout the Bible, there are different types of rest that God declares. Remember creation rest from Genesis 2. There's the Canaan rest that here is offered to the children of Israel in numbers. This offering was never revoked. It's important to keep this in mind. The offering of rest to the children of Israel was never removed, and it remains open today. And You see that in Psalms 95. The rest is spoken of and offered to us today here in Hebrews 4. As we dive into this chapter, you're going to see this. So what does it really mean to rest in him? You know, think about that. Just what does that mean? We're going to hit that at the end of this message pretty hard. But the word rested, it first shows up in the Bible in Genesis 2.2. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. So the law of first mention, this is something for all of you to be aware of. There's a, a principle when you study the Bible called the law of first mention. Anywhere that something shows up the first time in the Bible is important, God is is setting for the rest of the Bible, what does that mean? And a great example of that is the word love. The first place in the entire Bible the word love shows up is Genesis 22.2. And if you all know the story, it it is Abraham's offering of Isaac, his son, the promised seed. And it models how the father offered Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, it's modeled there, but look at Genesis 22 too. And he said, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac. Now that should catch your attention because Abraham had other sons. Remember Ishmael? He had other sons besides Isaac. So, but from God's perspective, there was one son, the promised son, that through him, the line of the Messiah would, would come through Isaac. And so he's telling him, go offering whom thou lovest. See, there it is. The first time in the entire Bible, the word love shows up. And get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. So right there, you see the whole purpose of love as an action, not an emotion. Love is, is not, and the world has confused it where you say, oh, I really love that ramen place, or I love that, I love football. You, know, you don't love football. Love is an action. <laughs> love is not an emotion. Love does something on behalf of someone else. That's what it is. Because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. You see the action tied to it. But that's right there in Genesis 22, the first place the word love shows up. The word rested shows up in Genesis 2, 2 for the first time, but it occurs 21 times in 21 verses in the Bible. And when I looked that up, that was really interesting to me, that 21, because you've got three as the Trinity, seven's always the number of completion for what God does on behalf of man. So you've got 21 times of rest in the Bible that God declares rested. And so he's telling you through the Trinity almost that, hey, we want you to rest also in him. The Israelites refused to enter God's rest, and so we need to heed that warning. If you remember from Hebrews 3.12 last week, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So if we do not, we too can lose our inheritance. And this is the the key lesson for all of us today as believers. Look at Numbers 14.12. I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. He's speaking to Moses and saying, because the children of Israel, they've, they've blown it, they have betrayed me, they've chased after idols and these abominable things, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to disinherit them. That's the key word, and that's what this is all about. It's about clinging onto an inheritance that God has for you. He's going to disinherit them. Okay, so the, for the first verse to start today, chapter 4, let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest. Any of you should seem to come short of it. So the promise is left for us today. The promise being left for us. Okay, it's, it's there for us today. That promise has never been fulfilled to the point that God removed it. He's offering it today. So we can enter into God's rest. And that's something that we've got to chase after through this sanctification process of letting the Lord refine us. In, in chapter 3, verse 19, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Okay, we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear. So it's a, this continuing theme. Okay, so what does it mean to fear the Lord? What does that mean? When you look at this, let us therefore fear the fear of the Lord. I think everybody, if you heard that phrase, you immediately have a concept of trembling, of being fearful, backing away from. Okay, you have these, these concepts of how you act if fear comes upon you, right? It's a, as an emotion. When you study this in the Bible, it's something kind of different. It's quite different than an emotional fear that the enemy tries to use against you. In Psalms 19.9, the fear of the Lord is clean, Enduring forever, and the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Okay, so we know it's clean and enduring. Psalms 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. His praise endureth forever. Okay, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is one reason why, really, since 1960, whenever they removed prayer out of school, this is one reason why the united states has fallen drastically behind in educating our children compared to the rest of the world we took the fear of the lord out of school and according to psalms 111 it's the beginning of wisdom and so you have no knowledge no wisdom no understanding in school because they don't attribute it to the creator anymore they they attribute it to randomness darwinism evolution etc so you propagate and teach lies to our children you take prayer out of school and then you wonder why they can't you know, solve math problems anymore. It's, it's unbelievable. But Proverbs 1, seven, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy, and the evil way, and the froward mouth do I hate. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Proverbs 10.27, the fear of the Lord prolongeth days, but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. See the fear of the Lord, it, it does all of these different things. Look at the next set of verses. Proverbs 1426. The fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and his children shall have a place of refuge. 1427, the fear of the Lord is a foundation to life, or a fountain of life, I should say, to depart from the snares of death. 1516, better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure. And troubled therewith. Sounds like whatever the fear of the Lord is, you need to get it. Okay, you're getting the hint. This is it's amazing stuff. Proverbs 15:33, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. Proverbs 16:6, 6, by mercy and truth iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the Lord men depart from evil. Okay, that's a key verse. When you look at the world today. If you fear man or fear something that the world can throw at you, you act out of that fear. Again, it's letting that emotion lead your spirit, right? And we're gonna, like I said, we're gonna talk about that a lot next week in the back half of Hebrews 4. But it's letting fear dictate your actions. Well, I have a fear of getting sick, or I have a fear of losing my job, or I have a fear of fill in the blank. And it drives you to do something, right? The enemy will not lose his grip on you in that regard. He'll try to make you make an irrational, unwise decision out of fear. But the fear of the Lord, see, whatever way your your fear meter is going, you're going to run to it. If you fear the Lord, you're going to run and draw closer to him because you fear him. And because you fear the act of drawing further away from him and what could happen to you. So you're drawing closer to the Lord, and the fear of the Lord, it's the instruction of wisdom, but by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. So departing evil, you're running to God. You're running to God because you're going boldly in the throne room of the universe and bowing down before him and laying it all at his feet and fleeing evil in your life, any sin you have, anything you're holding on to, because you fear the Lord. You have wisdom, you've got understanding, you have knowledge, you're seeking truth and mercy, and all of that is in God. So you're running to it, not from it. The last one, Proverbs nineteen twenty three: "...the fear of the Lord tendeth to life, and he that hath it shall abide satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil." So if you're running to the Lord because you have fear of the Lord then you are in his refuge, and he is rebuking that evil and the enemy out of your life. Okay, do you guys see, see the connection? It's important for that. Proverbs 22, 4, By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Proverbs twenty-three seventeen: Let not thine heart envy sinners, but be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long. So it's something you can get into, but it's something you can depart from. It's something you can get under, and take a hold of, but you can start to drift away, and then you can start to harden your heart. This is where the warnings from Hebrews kicks in, because you depart from the living God. Okay, let not thine heart envy sinners. Don't envy the world. When you see the world having something that you want a part of, don't let it draw you away from God. That's the key. So the only place the fear of the Lord shows up in the entire New Testament—this is interesting— is Acts 9.31. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee. Notice how it's linked to rest. And Samaria, and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. So that's amazing. The churches in Israel, after the church was formed in Acts, were having rest because they were walking in the fear of the Lord. So see it's it's linked that's why Hebrews 4: one let us therefore fear so that we can stay in the rest, the rest of God. okay, his rest, what is rest? you look at this if you look this up in the dictionary, it has a verb definition and a noun definition. The verb cease to work or movement in order to relax, refresh oneself or recover strength to be placed or supported so as to stay in a special or I'm sorry, a specified position. As a noun, it's an instance or period of relaxing or ceasing to engage in strenuous or stressful activity. Okay, so there's a noun and a verb. There is the cessation of movement or action, cessation of labor to enter a state of freedom from exertion. Okay, you think about when you rest, how you're you're stopping trying to do things under your own turmoil, your own strength. You're, trying, you're not trying to bulldog through things, right? You're resting. It's not strenuous. It's not stressful. People like to go on vacations, so what? So they can rest, right? They want to get away. They think they have to vacate something so they can go and rest. And the most stressful part of the trip is just even trying to get there and go through the airport with your kids and trying to get them and then you get there and you're all stressed out anyway and you don't even get to rest for like 48 hours because you're all tired and nobody's sleeping it's in a new place and anyway you just think about how funny that is people think they've got to go some the rest you can have is in the Lord you can rest anywhere you are just go to God and so you have this freedom from mental or emotional anxiety okay that's another part of rest repose of sleep that is refreshing to the body characterized by a reduction in metabolic activity. So when you, when you sleep, your body almost, it refreshes and restores your body. That's how God designed it to sleep because your metabolism slows down. You're not processing things. Your, your whole body is like resetting. It's really amazing. The repose of death is to release one from earthly toil and strife. There will come a time when you are released from the chains of being in a a mortal, earthly state, which is incredible when you think about it. So there are two different words for rest in chapter 4. And the first, which I'm not going to try to pronounce at all in the Greek, I'll totally butcher it, but it literally means putting a putting to rest, coming of the wind, or a resting place, the heavenly... Listen to this definition from the Greek lexicon... The heavenly blessedness in which God dwells and of which he has promised to make preserving believers in Christ partakers after the toils and the the trials of life on earth are ended. Now, that's a pretty cool definition. That's a rest that I want to get into. The word is used eight times in the New Testament. It's seven times in Hebrews 3 and 4. It's chapter 3, verse 11, 18, 4, 1, 4, 3, 5, 10, and 11. It's used only one other place outside of Hebrews, and that's in Acts seven forty nine. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool, declares God. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Now, that's a great sar- sarcastic question from the Lord. What is the place of my rest? You know, he's, he's offering this up to the believer saying, just run to me and get in this place. You're looking for it all over the world. What is the place of my rest? It's not the earth. It's me. And that's what God is saying. Get into me so that you can have rest. The second word in chapter 4 for rest shows up in Hebrews 4.9, and it only shows up once in the entire New Testament, and it's used as the Sabbath. Okay, it means literally keeping Sabbath or the blessed rest from toils and troubles looked for in the age to come by the true worshipers of God and true Christians. The rest being offered there is modeled after the seventh day in Genesis 2 where God rested. He took a Sabbath, a Shabbat in Hebrew. So God rested from his work, labor, or turmoil. Now, when you think about that, that rest that God offered in Genesis, it was, and we went through this. If, if you're not familiar with this study, we did, a, after we finished Revelation, we did two, a two-part special message on let there be war. And the first one was the war between God and the angels in Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2, between those two verses and the war that broke out. And so the rest that God had, it wasn't from creation, It was from putting it all back together again. And there's a whole study there, just if you look it up in verse two of Genesis, and the world was without form and void and darkness was on the deep, the world was 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 Tohu Vebohu in the Hebrew. And when you go to Isaiah 45, 18, God declares, I created the world, I created it not tohu in Hebrew. So there's a hint there that there's something much deeper. And when you literally look into it, what happened was God created the heavens and earth in verse one, the angels rebelled, earth was judged, and Job, they cheered when the earth was created. So we know they were before the earth. And so the earth was judged. It sat dormant for what could have been billions of years until the spirit of God in verse three started brewing over the waters and putting it all back together again. And when you go through the seven days of what we've called in the church forever, creation. It's the seven days of recreation, putting it order out of chaos because God sees each day and there's an evening and a morning, and those words in the Hebrew really mean order and chaos. And the seventh day, that's why there's no evening and morning because he finished putting order out of chaos. And that's really what God is saying here in linking this Sabbath, this Shabbat, to what you can have rest in, is stop trying to put order to your chaos. If you have sin in your life that creates chaos and is chaotically driving your family, stop and give it to him. Stop trying to hold on to it and deal with it yourself when he's the one that paid for it and wants to take it off of you in the first place. And a lot of times we as believers try to do it under our own strength and then we wonder why, gosh, I just can't get rid of this. Whatever this is, you know, fill in the blank for whatever's in your life. And God is wanting you to give it to him so that you can enter in a rest from putting order out of chaos, which is pretty amazing when you go all the way back to Genesis 2. Okay, so in the Greek, the word for rest, it's very closely linked to the Old Testament word for inheritance. Now, this is pretty cool. This comes out a lot in the Septuagint. If you're not familiar with the Septuagint Bible, it is the Greek... The, Greek old, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew by the Holy Spirit. 300 years before Jesus walked the earth, Greece ruled the world, and they took 70, which is the word for Septuagint in the Greek. It's just a fancy word for 70. They took 70 of their best Hebrew scholars, Hebrew-Greek scholars, and they translated the Hebrew into Greek in the Old Testament, the entire thing, word for word. And they're very deliberate. There's a, there's a really cool history to that, if you're ever interested in looking that up. But the Greek Old Testament, 300 years before Jesus walked the earth, is the Septuagint. And you if you study it, you can get a lot of really cool links like this out of it. Because Deuteronomy 3 and 12, God links their rest to their inheritance. And in the Greek, you pick it up really good. But in Deuteronomy 3.18, and I commanded you at that time, saying... The Lord your God hath given you this land to possess it. Ye shall pass over, arm before your brethren, the children of Israel, all that are meet for the war. In the next verse, but your wives and your little ones and your cattle, for I know that you have much cattle, shall abide in your cities which I have given you until the Lord have given you rest unto your brethren as well as unto you. And until they all possess the land which the Lord your God hath given them, beyond the Jordan, and then shall ye return every man unto his possession which I have given you. See, so he's linking the rest and the inheritance of the land. In Deuteronomy 12:9. For ye are not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance which the Lord your God giveth you. So again, God's telling them, The rest and the inheritance that I had for you is this promised land. And we as Christians today, we have a rest and an inheritance waiting for us to enter into. And that inheritance is not necessarily constrained to your future home in heaven. And that's we're going to hit this in a minute at the very end here and go through this chronologically. But, you know, when you travel this sanctification process and you lay everything down at the feet of Jesus, you fear the Lord because you give it all to him and there is a rest that you start to enter into in this life, and you're not trying to do things your own way, walk your own path, hold on to sin in your life, and I can't tell you how many people I've talked to over, over my life as a believer who, you know, they have something, and, they, and they're very open about it. I just can't get rid of this in my life, whatever it is, fill it in, and, and they justify it so many ways. Well, it's okay because God hasn't struck me down yet, so he must be okay with it, and I'll just keep going with it. But when you really peel it back and you look at their life, you realize, wow, God is screaming at them to lay this down. And they don't even recognize it. they're restless at night. They're not sleeping. They've got anxiety. You know, whatever the issue is. and But you're, it's when you enter into his rest here in this world, you stop trying to do it on your own. And so as you continue that journey to become more and more like him, there's an ease of life that starts to set in. There's a certain ease about your life where you realize, no matter what comes against you, wow, okay, God's going to take care of this. I have confidence because he did it here and here, and 10 years ago he did this, and two years ago he did this. And you start to build a almost like repetitions with God on giving it to him, no matter what the enemy throws at you. Sin starts to lose its grip on you when you start getting on this path the dragging and consumption that it used to have on your life and trying to chain you so that you can't run for the Lord, it starts to unshackle. And all you have to do is just walk out of it. Remember the Holy Spirit when he opened the prison doors? And and there were prisoners that wanted to stay in there. It's kind of the same thing. God is opening the prison doors and saying, Just walk out. Just give it to me. But there's so many Christians today that don't understand the authority and the power you have over sin because the Holy Spirit that dwells in you that they're content sitting in the cell despite the door being wide open. And they're just sitting there going, I'm good here. I've got my, you know, my meal, my water comes every day or whatever. But you walk in rest and freedom serving the Lord. Look at Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. Come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And what does he do? And I will give you rest. That's that word again. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See that we're, we're not real familiar with a, what a yoke is, but in the agricultural communities back then, a yoke is something that they would finally tailor to the oxen. You didn't pick up a yoke that was fit for Mason and try to put it on me. You know, you, you, I'm sorry, Mason, I'm just, just laugh. Okay. Can I, there you go. So you didn't do that, right? It was finally tailored for some, for that certain animal. And that's what Jesus is saying. He has a yoke that is finally tailored to you. And it's easy. Once you take it and you walk in what he wants you to do in service to his kingdom, It's easy. You're not struggling with it because he called you to it. He doesn't call you to do something that doesn't prepare and equip you for. So walking in that rest and sanctifying yourself before the Lord ultimately leads to a heavenly inheritance and eternal rest with him. Look at Matthew 6, verses 20 and 21. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt. And where thieves do not break through nor steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I'm sure all of you have heard those verses, and what God is saying is that you can do something to lay treasure up in heaven in advance. You know, I love the way a lot of people talk about it when, when people pass away, and they'll, you'll hear the phrase, we can't take it with you, right? You hear that phrase, I know all of you have heard that phrase at a funeral or something, And what Jesus is saying is that you can send it in advance. You can send it ahead. And how you do that is by serving him and walking into something he has prepared for you from John 14. So do you treasure God above all else? It's a question. Search your hearts and take it before the Lord. Do you treasure him above all else? Does he have all of your heart and not just a piece? Again, he doesn't want to be one on a list of 100. He wants to be one on a list of one, and then let him drive your life out of that point. And does the Lord reign supreme over your life? You may know him as Savior, but do you know him as Lord? That's something that everybody should strive for. In verse 2 of this chapter, For unto us was the gospel preached as well unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it, All of you have heard the word, the gospel, right? Everybody, we just need to share the gospel. What is the gospel? You know, if you asked a hundred different Christians, again, you're going to get a hundred different answers, like what is faith? And the gospel is actually defined for us in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved." If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that that which I also received, and here's the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scripture. That's the gospel. Now, in the New Testament, remember the Scriptures they had was the Old Testament. And so where in the Old Testament did it preach that Jesus would die Be buried three days and rise again. And that goes down a whole trail of how Jesus is literally on every word of the Old Testament, the entire Bible, frankly. But when you look at the gospel, it's very simple. Getting saved is simple. The challenge then becomes walking with God in that salvation, on the sanctification process, and coming to Him and being refined by Jesus. So the children of Israel that entered to spy out the promised land in Numbers 13, there are their names. So you can get that list out of Numbers 13. There's 12 guys, one from each tribe. And what I did, so I was looking at this, and, and God showed me a lot of different things. As, as all of you know, I love to look at what the names in the Bible mean, because God puts them in an order for a reason. And when you kind of look at what their names mean, he's always got a message out of it for you. And I'm not going to tell you what the message is here because there's, there's about three different ways you could look at this. But Shemu is to hear, Sephets judge. Caleb is faithful, wholehearted, bold, or brave. Igal, redeemed. Asha, ye, ye, Yahweh, is salvation, excuse me. Paddy God, liberates. Gadiel, goat of God, or the Lord, my happiness. Gadi my troop, a kid. Amiel, God of my people. Sether is hid and destroying. Nabi is very secret. And Gul is God's redemption. Now, this list of people, God does not look on favorably, right? Because they went into the promised land. They spied out the land, if you remember. And they all came back with a bad report except two of them, Joshua and Caleb. And number five is Joshua, Oshia. Yahweh is salvation. Number three is Caleb. So those two of the 12 came back and gave a good report Everybody else was something bad. And when you look at this, I looked at this list of a message kind of three different ways. One, just in the order it's written, 1 to 12. And there is a message there when you look at those words. I looked at it, but you also look at it backwards because the people were judged, right? So I went from bottom up, and there's a message there. Then I looked at it, if you went to the very middle of it, 6 and 7, and you worked in the middle, and then you went down, so 5 and 8, And then you went four and nine, and then three and ten, two and eleven, one and twelve. You could go out from the middle that way. Mason, come on, you're with me. But when you look at that way, there's a message there. So anyway, I just put this list in the in your notes for you guys so you can look at it. Just take it to the Lord and ask him to show you some different messages out of it. But God was crying out to them that he had a redemption and a place of rest for them to get. out of this land, this defiled land they were roaming through, to give them a promised land. And they wouldn't hear him, so he judged them. And so it's, you can go to the next slide, Brent. So it's a pretty cool pretty cool set of things to look at. In verse 3, For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. See, God finished everything before creation so that we could enter in with him, Now, that's a key phrase, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. So, what was finished from the foundation of the world? When you look at it, Revelation 13, 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life. The lamb, what? Slain from the foundation of the world. See, Jesus was slain before the world was even laid, because God knew what he was getting himself into before he ever created it. In chapter 17 verse 8, the beast that thou sawest and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they beheld the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now we've covered this a ton but the book of life and not to deviate too much but when you get into the study of it Every person that was ever created, their name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Jesus tasted death for all of them, Hebrews 2.9. The question is, do you accept his propitiation for your sin to keep your name written there? In several places in the Bible, when, God, when someone rejects the Lord, he tells them, I have to blot you out of my book because you've rejected my salvation. It was written there, but you didn't receive it, so I have to blot you out, which is an important concept. Matthew 25, 34, then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, this is about the kingdom, Jesus establishing the millennium, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. See, there's a kingdom that's been prepared from the foundation of the world. In verse 4, for he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, And God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place, again, if he shall enter into my rest. So God is linking the Sabbath rest at the time of recreation with the rest the Israelites forfeited in the wilderness. From Numbers 13, 14 and Psalms 95, they could have also ceased from their turmoil, wandering around work, and instead entered into God's rest. They could have ceased it, but they chose not to because of disbelief. In verse six, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Their God is confirming that again, that it's due to unbelief. They failed to enter the state into that state of their lives because of unbelief. In Greek, the word for of unbelief it literally means obstinate opposition to divine will. So think about that. Unbelief is going against the will of God. That's what, that's what the word literally means in the Greek. So they refused God's will for their lives to stop worshiping the world and to turn away from their idols, and they instead listened to the bad report from the enemy back in Numbers 13. And because of their disbelief, they didn't, they didn't enter God's will. They were refusing his will. He told them, go in and take the promised land. He never told them to send in spies and spy out the promised land. They did that on their own because they didn't fear the Lord. They feared what was there. And so God, once again, had to take them out. In verse 7, again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, today. So here's a key word, today. After so long a time, as it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. So, this rest was offered by God in the beginning in Genesis. It was again offered to Israel in the wilderness, which we've been looking at. It was again offered in the time of David in Psalms 95 to the believers then. Then, the Lord offered it up to the Christians during the days of the book of Hebrews. And now, it's offered to us yet again today. Okay he uses the word today in all of these instances because it is forever open to us no matter when it's read it's offered today no matter what time period you're in in verse 8 for if Jesus had given them rest then would he not afterward have spoken of another day okay the tra- the word translated for Jesus here could be Joshua Joshua is a variant form of Yeshua Okay, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus. Now, when you study, as a side note, when you have a book of the Bible whose name on it is our Messiah, Joshua, you should look at it with deep, deep critical eyes and see how does this book equal Jesus? Because the whole book of Joshua is conquering the land that's been dispossessed by the enemy and he fights these ten kings, and three are put down, and there's signs in heaven. Remember the meteors and the, and the balls of fire come down. He has the sun stand still. There's signs in the moons and the stars. The kings that flee him hide in caves and cry out for redemption. All of it is modeling what Jesus does in Revelation, the whole thing. Because Jesus is conquering back a land that's been taken by the enemy. And there's signs in heaven. There's... The kings hide in caves in Revelation 6 and cry out to God. So the whole book is a precursor or a type, a foreshadowing of what Jesus does in Revelation. So Joshua's Yeshua, it's very close to Yeshua. And in the Greek, in Hebrews 4, 8, it's speaking of when they entered the land. So Joshua was that human leader, if you remember, that led them in the promised land. Joshua 5, Jesus is the one with his sword drawn really fighting their battles. Remember, Joshua comes face to face with him and says, are you for us or for your enemy? And Jesus responds, nay, but as captain of the Lord's host, I have come, take off your shoe, you're on holy ground. And Joshua heard that with Moses at the burning bush, take off your shoe. And it was the voice of Jesus out of that burning bush as he claims in John chapter eight to the Pharisees. Because he says, before Abraham was, I am And that was the voice of the burning bush. Remember Moses asked him, who shall I say sent me? And he says, tell them I am that I am. So Jesus was fighting their battle, and then they chose not to let him anymore. He fought the whole battle at Jericho. And then they chose, okay, we need an earthly king. They get Saul, and then they just blow it the whole whole rest of the Old Testament. Just kind of incredible. So Joshua was the human. Jesus was the captain and the king. And this verse is, is, again, as I mentioned, it's one reason why he's a leader better than Joshua, Jesus is, because he's giving us a rest that we can all enter into. If the rest was only offered once, the Holy Spirit would not have spoken of yet another day, and kept using the phrase, today, today. In verse 9, there remaineth therefore a rest of the people of God. Here is that second Greek word for the Sabbath, okay, the rest of the people of God. The Sabbath that was instituted by God in the beginning, can we cover that verse? It was memorialized in the Ten Commandments. Now, a lot of people today are really confused on the Sabbath. Should we celebrate it? Do we do it? Do we not do it? What, how do we act as a church today? Well, notice the Sabbath was instituted by God in the beginning, all the way back in Genesis 2. In Exodus, in the Ten Commandments, it's memorialized. Remember what God says in Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath. So it's not instituted in the law. The law has memorialized it, much like the law murder, for example. All of us would agree nobody goes around murdering today. That's a bad thing, I should rephrase. You shouldn't go around. It's a bad thing. People do it still. But we all know that it's not just because it was in the law, and nobody is saying, well, we're not under the law anymore, so so not murdering doesn't apply to us. No, there's a lot of things in the law, so to speak, that God memorialized that were established long before that. For example, tithing. Noah was a tither. It was long before the law. Noah took, you ask any, any Christian, how many animals did Noah take on the ark? Well, two. Yes, two of every unclean, seven of every clean, though. Now, why did he take clean animals on the ark? Well, because he needed them for sacrifices. When was that instituted? Well, that was before the law. So what's going on here? And when you really think about it, look at what Jesus says. The Sabbath is made for man and a blessing for us, not in a legalistic sense. Mark two, twenty seven and twenty eight, and he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. See, God tells you to remember the Sabbath because it's an opportunity for a blessing. And I found a, a science article a couple years ago and I couldn't find it to put in the notes, so I apologize, I'll keep looking. But I read a, an article somewhere that the Earth's magnetic field actually shifts on Saturday so that if you, for example, if you take a nap on Saturday afternoon for an hour, you actually get double the time. You rest, your rest is doubled because of that. And so I'm not telling you all to take naps on Saturday, and maybe you're, and the guys in here, maybe you're going to use that to your wives as, see, we just got to do it. But, <laughs> but it's, it's amazing when I read that, it really kind of struck me as, wow, God really knew what he was saying. You have an opportunity for a blessing. Just slow down in what happens to us today. The whole world has pushed everything to Saturday, right? Every sporting event, every tournament, everything you could do with your kids, it's all on Saturday. And it's just it's amazing how Lord instituted that as a blessing for us, and the enemy even tries to take that away. So the last two verses here, Hebrews 4.10, For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own work, as God did from his. So again, stop trying to work your way through the sanctification process and submit your way through it. That's the key. Don't work through it, submit through it. And the quicker you get on your knees in it, the quicker you get through it. <laughs> I promise you. Uh, cease from your works and follow Jesus, and you must hold firmly to him. And at that time, can you then truly enter into the rest of the Lord? And the last verse of, that we're going to cover today in Hebrews 4, Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. So you have absolute assurance of eternal life in Jesus and being raised up with him. But however, to be a partaker and an overcomer with Messiah, you must run with him and do his will. That's that's the key here. Can you go to the next slide, Marit? So the unfolding of rest for a believer, think about this. First, you have the justification of rest of forever being saved. Secondly, a spiritually mature rest in this life, walking with God, which ultimately leads to finally a kingdom rest of ruling with Jesus after this life. So it's this progression of resting in God. And if you're in Jesus and you are currently working on entering that second rest, okay? If you're in him, if you're here and you're born again, or if you're watching this online and you're born again, you are in that part two. We're trying to grow in your spiritual maturity to rest in Jesus in this life and not let the pains of the world take you over. So why is that, that third rest, finally to enter into a kingdom inheritance? And we've covered these a few times, but the rewards and the inheritance in the Bible, there are five crowns listed in the Bible, and each one is linked to something different, a different action, looking for the, the rapture, uh, leading the flock, feeding and helping out the, the helpless, you know, all of these different things. So the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, crown imperishable, crown of rejoicing, and they're not, this is not, in my opinion at least, an all-inclusive list in the Bible. I think God put these here to give you a hint, a remez, as the Jews would say, of something deeper. And there's probably an infinite number of crowns when you get to heaven. I, there's probably one for brewing coffee at church, in the morning, and there might be one for setting up chairs. I have no idea, but there's a lot of different things we get to look forward to in heaven, and when you really stop and recognize that, wow, God loves me so much, and he is, as the scriptures say, he is a rewarder of the diligent. So take that to heart, that when you're diligent in your walk with God, he is a rewarder of that. You're not just doing this for nothing. You know, it's not like you just go through life and at the end, we all end up in the same place and of course, we're all gonna be in heaven. Yes, absolutely. But one of you might have a different crown than someone else. One of you may have a different, look at these rewards to the overcomer from Revelation chapter two and three. God, Jesus declares this. One of the rewards for the overcomer is to eat of the tree of life, not her the second death, hidden manna, white stone and a new name, power over the nations, white raiment, A pillar in his forever temple with a new name on it, to sit with Christ on his throne, to inherit, there's a key word in Revelation 21, to inherit all things. That's yet future. You know, none of us in this room are ruling over nations yet. But in the millennium, you get to do that with Jesus. That's he you are co-heirs with Jesus. He was made heir of all things, and you are co-heirs with him. So how are you an overcomer? In Revelation, remain loyal to God. It's Revelation 2, 1 through 3. So don't lose your first love. Remember the whole letter to the Ephesians. You've lost your first love. Is your first love Jesus and have you strayed from him? Okay, overcoming trials and tribulations while remaining faithful in Revelation 2, 8 through 11. To be spiritually zealous for the Lord in Revelation 2.19. Don't deny Christ in Revelation 3.8 and 10. Don't defile your garments in Revelation 3.4. And keep the word of his patience in Revelation 3.10. And so God is wanting to present a blameless and spotless church. Remember Ephesians 5? So don't defile yourself in this life once you're in the Lord. Once you're in the, in the Lord... Let him take care of it and walk with him. Look at this from 1 Samuel 2.6 as we close with the, the call to action here. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill. To do what? To set them among princes and to make them inherit The throne of glory. That is amazing. That it doesn't, don't worry about where you are in this life. You know, rich, poor, whatever your job is, serve Jesus and let him take care of you and enter into his rest where you're not striving for things of the world. You're striving for things of the kingdom. And so to do that, you've got to build your faith. And faith, again, I mentioned this near the message. I've told a a couple people of this actually this week. But the faith is the simplest definition you can think of. It's Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And it's important because without it, Hebrews 11.6, without it, it's impossible to please God. And so how do you get it? Romans 10.17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And how often should you do it? It's the namesake of our men's Bible study that meets here Acts 17, 11, daily. Search the scriptures daily. You've got to do it daily and don't be negligent. Every relationship in your life, everything you do takes intentional action on your, on your part, right? Relationships with your kids, your spouse, your family members, your jobs, whatever. Your relationship with Jesus is exactly the same. You've got to be intentional about it or else you're not going to build it. And we've talked a lot about how God is using the children of Israel as an example of crossing the Jordan and entering the promised land. They had abysmal failure because there were strongholds they didn't completely destroy in the promised land. There are three areas in the promised land. When you study Joshua and 2 Corinthians and these others, that the children of Israel did not listen to God. And it was what we know today as the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and the Golan Heights. And when you look at it and study it, because they did not tear down those strongholds all the way thousands of years before, look at it on that map. You see that in the headlines every week out of Israel, that there's what? Conflicts and battles, and they struggle constantly. And even Russia recently came out and said, hey, the Gaza Strip doesn't belong to you guys. Well, it doesn't because Israel didn't dispossess it from the beginning. And when you let it fester and you have things in your life that you let propagate through your life and you don't uproot it and get rid of it, you too will have areas in your life that are thorns in your side constantly. And so you've got to get rid of it. Whatever you're battling in your life, you've got to take it out. So that's the question on the bottom there. What stronghold has God told you to eradicate and is it completely gone? That's the question. And so... In doing so, when you eradicate it, you can't have anything that is abominable in your life and then go fight the enemy. From Joshua 7 and 12, that principle is laid out that because they did not sanctify themselves and they kept the accursed thing in their life, they were wiped out by their enemies. They couldn't go fight the battle because they were trying to do it with chains around their feet. And so in Joshua 22, there were two and a half tribes. They wanted to stay east of the the Jordan, remember that? They didn't want to press on anymore into a greater inheritance. And that's what God is telling all of us today from Hebrews. Press on to a greater rest and inheritance in the Lord. And so if you're watching this online, if if you're here in this room today and you're not saved, it's simple, Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's all it takes is the profession of what Jesus did in pain on your behalf. And at that point, you can then enter that sanctification process. So say that prayer. If you're watching this online, if you're not saved today, go to your bedroom, get on your knees, say that prayer, declare Jesus. We'll close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you so much for this day. God, thank you for everyone that's here this morning. God, thank you for everything that you are doing in and through New City. God, this is your church. It's not our church. You are the head of it. You are the leader. God, we're not looking to anyone else to lead this church. And we love you that you have guided us every step of the way. And God, we pray that you'd be with all of those families that were so sorely missed this morning. Be with Be with us this afternoon as we depart from this place. Be with all those families that are out traveling and making it back or those that have sick kids at home. God, again, we just pray healing over them. We pray that you would take that sickness off their children. And God, I want to lift up Blake to you right now as he speaks today at that event and speaking about what you've brought him out of in his life. God, let him be an instrument of truth, and mighty power, that Lord, because of your spirit, you can tear down those strongholds that would so easily ruin our lives and keep us enchained. Lord, you did it in his life. And God, I pray that you would be a a bold witness today through Blake and let your words anoint that room. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.